All right, well, our scripture reading, I'll start out. You, I can read it for you. You don't need to see it, right? If you want to, you can open your Bibles. Matthew 22, verse 37 through 39. Well, uh, well Alex pulls up those slides because uh, it was a busy week. It's a crazy week. That week between Christmas and New Year's is a little uh, chaotic for me. It's actually kind of quiet this, this week, but um, trying to do a lot of other things and just wrap up the year and um, then also spend some time in actual like reflection and not just, not just rush from one thing to the next and spend some, some quiet time in prayer. So I, uh, I neglected to send the very large slide deck over to email, but I think it'll work out. So our scripture reading this morning is Matthew 22, verses 37. Well, we'll start with 34. Go through verse 40. Hearing that Jesus silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together, and one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and all the prophets hang on these commandments. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks Thanks be to God. All right. Oh, look at that. This is from the Journal of John Wesley on January 1st, 1739. So I didn't do the math on that, but 280-some years ago? 83? No, I don't know. I might be off on that. A long time ago. John Wesley wrote this. He said, Mr. Hall, Kinchin, Ingham, Whitfield, Hutchins, and my brother Charles were present at our love feast in Fetter Lane. It's not as good without a British accent, but sorry. Make do with what you got with about 60 of our brethren. About three in the morning, as we were continuing instant in prayer, the power of God came mightily upon us, insomuch that many cried out for exceeding joy, and many fell to the ground. As soon as we were recovered a little from that awe and amazement at the presence of his majesty, we broke out with one voice. We praise thee, O God. We acknowledge thee to be the Lord. For John Wesley, that experience, which if you're familiar with the history of Wesley, in uh, May 1739 or 1738, he had this, this conversion experience, um, which he called at the time a conversion experience. Later, he would just say it was, um, it was this incredible moment of being aware of the presence of God and the power of him. And what he says is that he felt the love of God shed abroad in his heart uh, on Aldersgate Street, May 24, 1738. So this experience that Wesley describes here on January 1st, about seven-ish months after his Aldersgate experience, and it changed his life. Like that experience changed his life. I I tend to be someone who, I guess probably because of my personality and because I'm a little bit like neurotic like that, I, I really like the process and the discipline and slow, steady, persistent growth over time. Like that's me. That's my bias. That's my, but so sometimes I minimize or neglect the power of a catalytic and transformative experience, right? Um, which I think in this way, I am similar to Wesley in personality-wise. He tended to as well until he experienced it. Uh, a couple months after this is something that, that quite most historians would say it changed the landscape of the history of Europe, actually. Uh, It prevented what many believe would have happened in England, what happened in France. So you know the French Revolution, off with their head, that whole stuff, you know, not good, guillotines and bad day for everybody, if you're French nobility, if you're not, you know, 
comrade, long live the people, right? Um, that was prevented in England, many believe, because of what happened through the Methodist revival in the 1700s. And part of the catalyst for that was not only Wesley's Aldergate experience in this moment, but then a couple months later, he was invited by George Whitfield, a.k.a. Mr. Whitfield, to, uh, to begin field preaching in this place called Bristol, England, and just going out to where the people were and proclaiming the gospel and the good news to them. Um, the reason that I share that with you is that uh, this reshaped the way that John Wesley thought about the calendar, too, which I think is kind of cool. And so starting from this point on, he began to keep what he called a watch night, um, which was, and some different traditions do this, some folks do this in more or lesser degrees, but the idea was that they would spend some longer amount of time on either December 31st or January 1st in prayer before God. So like in this particular instance, I mean, this is three in the morning. As a kind of a fun side note, John Wesley had this firm belief that the Holy Spirit was most active between 2 and 3 a.m. Like, I don't know why. Take that, put it in your pocket, share it at your cocktail parties, or don't. You know, it's interesting. So anyway, maybe because of this, I don't know. But, but he had this idea that he would dedicate or devote some amount of the start of his year uh, to being in the presence of God, devoting it to prayer. In 1775, so this is many, many years later, after Methodism had grown and had just um, it, it grown across England, I mean, from a handful of people to hundreds of thousands of people, uh, had moved across the Atlantic Ocean. Um, Wesley formalized this process into what he called the covenant renewal service to be used in groups of Methodists wherever they were, uh, which is something that we've done for the last five, six years uh, on, on or around New Year's Eve, or New Year's Day, which is what today is. Happy New Year, by the way. Thanks. Appreciate it. Um, to me, one of the things I like about it is because it helps us to stay rooted historically in our tradition, but also to tie two things together, which is this, this kind of where I find myself like as a person. Um, some of you know I'm kind of like, you know, I really love books. I could just sit alone in a corner with books and be pretty happy, to be honest. Um, I did it yesterday for like a good long time, and it was really nice. Um, but so to like be able to tie that, kind of like the liturgical and the scholarly and the academic with like the vibrancy and the unexpected manifestation of the Holy Spirit, right? To be able to tie together, which I think Wesley does really interestingly, like an Oxford-educated, you know, scholar of scholars with the Holy Spirit coming in power and being laid on the ground and crying out. Like that sounds very Pentecostal, doesn't it? And yet, like, John Wesley was probably one of the, the most educated people in his day, extremely intelligent, and not at all prone to what he called fits of enthusiasm, is what they called it. Um, so I think part of what this does, this covenant, helps to tie those things together. In his 1782 letter to one Betsy Mortimer, John Wesley wrote, from our brethren in various parts of England and Ireland, I have very pleasing accounts of the uncommon blessings which many received at the time of renewing their covenant with God. I'm glad to hear that you at Otley had your share. That point, entire salvation from inbred sin, can hardly ever be insisted upon, either in preaching or prayer, without a particular blessing. So the key point for Wesley was that our hearts would be checked before God in covenant renewal, is that not only would it be about us renewing our commitment to the Lord, which is important, but it would even more so be about remembering his covenant to us, 
It's like John says, you love because he first loved you. Like, we love because he first loved us. Right? It's in response to that action. It's in response to his love that we respond in turn. So that, for Wesley, was what this really, was really about. Um, his desire, ultimately and fundamentally, was for people to be what he called, quote, altogether Christians, and not, quote, almost Christians. Um, sorry if you didn't want, like, John Wesley history lesson today. That's what you're getting. Um, you're welcome. I actually think it's really helpful, though, and, and there's a reason. I, I was going to go in a different direction this week with it, but then thinking about the covenant renewal service, and I love history, and I just felt like, you know, we'll go with it. Um, for Wesley, he, he made a distinction between what he called almost Christians and altogether Christians, uh, which is probably what got him kicked out of every church that he preached in. <laughs> I mean, by the mid-1740s, John Wesley was not allowed to preach in a church building in England. Um, he actually, and then for the ensuing couple decades, he was stoned. Like, people picked up rocks and threw rocks at him. Uh, he was beaten. He was dragged out of town. He, like, you know, traveled all, I mean... He didn't have, like, the easiest life, but it's because he insisted upon what I'm about to, uh, about to tell you. So one of his key points was that most people in England in the 1700s were what he called almost Christians, is that in, in the Church of England, of course, a little different than in America, but the Church of England was the established state church. Everyone was baptized. Everyone was invited to church. Everyone was presumably, quote, Christian. Um, but there was rampant societal injustice. There was slavery was across the British Empire. He saw it as a huge problem. There was gambling. There, was, um, there were brothels on every street corner. There were some problems, right? Um, for Wesley and then later William Wilberforce, the two great societal problems were they called slavery and the reformation of manners. We don't talk like that anymore, but the idea was that like, the way that people live their life was inconsistent with the way of Jesus. So, for Wesley, three categories, three distinctives of being an almost Christian. This is from a sermon he preached in St. Mary's, Oxford, 1741. The first one he said was heathen honesty. Again, don't talk like that anymore. But essentially, when he, the way he describes this is heathen honesty is being a basically good person. Uh, there's this problem, like, in the army. I saw this all the time. Is like, um, <laughs> it didn't matter how competent or incompetent people were at their jobs. Like, I remember this, we had this one company commander, he was, uh, he was just really bad. Like, he was really bad at leading men in combat. Like, horrifically bad. He would freeze up all the time, he couldn't make a decision, he was out of shape, which is a problem when you're leading, like, 19 to 24-year-old men in Afghanistan. That's kind of an issue, you know? And uh, it was brought up one time to, like, one of our bosses, and like, hey, you know, Johnny is, like, maybe not the best choice. Like, he's going to get somebody hurt. And the response was a common response that I heard all the time. It's like, yeah, but he's a good dude. The good dude syndrome is a problem. You know, we want everyone to be basically a good person. And most people, I think, want to be basically good people. And for John Wesley, that was, that was one of the problems, is that somehow, some way, in Christianized societies, we conflate being a good person with being a Christian. Not necessarily wrongly so, but like to say that someone is not a Christian is somehow to imply that they're not a good person. And so if someone's a good person, then ipso facto, they must be a Christian. You see the, the logic here? And so for Wesley, the number one was if you are basically a good person, that's great. Doesn't mean you're a Christian. Doesn't mean that you know the living God. 
doesn't mean that you have the love of God shed abroad in your heart. It just means you're basically a good person. Heathen honesty, he called it. Number two was what he said, having a form of godliness. So you go to church, you go through the, uh, you do the sacraments. He says in, it's a person who looks outwardly like a Christian. They're probably even having God we trust in their license plate, you know? No? Nothing? Am I the only person who like looks at that? Maybe like secretly judge people. I shouldn't do it, but sometimes I do. Like, we were talking about it's like see people like in our neighborhood, like, mm, they don't have any God we trust in their license plate. <laughs> Need to pray for them. No, I'm just kidding. I mean, sort of. We do joke about it, but <laughs> I mean, in all seriousness. It's something, right? But having a form of godliness, just because someone goes to church, just because someone says they're a Christian, just because they look the part, just because they do Christian stuff, doesn't mean they are a Christian. So, so far, so, so far, Wesley has said that just because you're a good person and just because you say you're a Christian and do Christian stuff doesn't mean you're a Christian, doesn't mean that you're saved, doesn't mean that you have the, the presence of God and the Holy Spirit in your heart. Do you see my, maybe he got like kicked out of churches, you know? <laughs> Point number three for Wesley, and, and this honestly was the one like as I was reading through this, it's like, really, John? I don't know. This is what he said. He said the third, the third distinctive is sincerity. Like, if you actually even want to please God and serve God, he said, quote, a real inward principle of religion from whence your outward actions flow. Just even if you have that, doesn't mean you're a Christian. He continued and said that if any man from the same motive, and he goes on to list some examples, to avoid punishment, to avoid the loss of friends, or for his own gain, or his reputation, should not only abstain from doing evil, but also do ever so much good. Yea, and we don't say that, but yea, and use all the means of grace. Yet we could not, with any propriety, say this man is even almost a Christian. If he has no better principle in his heart, he is only a hypocrite altogether. Cue the removing him from the pulpit, you know? Um, but his point, which uh, this one actually I, I found really interesting, because his point is that if your motivation for your Christian actions, if your motivation for religious activity is to avoid punishment, which, like, let's be honest, is a major evangelistic technique in East Tennessee, you don't want to go to hell, do you? We better get right with God. If you are only a Christian to avoid hell, his point is, you are not a Christian. If you are only a Christian, John Wesley says, to look good in front of other people, then you are not a Christian. If you are only a Christian to, um, to avoid losing friends or relationships with your family, he says, you are not a Christian. If you are only a Christian to boost your own personal gain, your reputation, then you are not a Christian. If you are a Christian, he says, just because you want to feel better about yourself, then you are not a Christian. You see why Wesley got kicked out of places, right? But it was actually, this is really interesting too, but it was actually because of his emphasis on this and because he was unwilling to budge, because he was committed with clarity to being different, that he led a movement that changed the landscape of history. See, it's the temptation that we all run into. Is we look at the world and we say, you know, the world out there is just, it's going to hell in a handbasket. What are we going to do? They need to, you know, they need to get to church. They need to do whatever, right? We got to do something. And so what we say is, well, we'll just, you know, we'll lower the bar. We'll change some things. We'll do some different stuff to kind of, you know, make them feel welcome. 
Wesley took the opposite approach. He said, yeah, you want to feel welcome? Guess what? You're not a Christian. You're going to hell. It was Wesley in summary, right? And he said, and if you convert because I just said you're going to hell, then guess what? You're still not a Christian. So get it together. Interesting guy. Uh, <laughs> he, had, he had some friends, but not many. By contrast, though, he said that an altogether Christian was someone who had, quote, the love of God shed abroad in their heart. The difference, the singular difference, between someone who was an almost Christian, someone who was an altogether Christian for John Wesley, was love. The single difference. What is your motivation? How's this question? It's usually at this point that I start to like squirm in my seat and feel uncomfortable and like, I don't know, what is my motivation? But for Wesley, this was the point. He says, the single motivation for someone who is an altogether Christian, someone who is genuine, sincere in their faith, who has a living and loving and abiding relationship with the Lord, is someone who loves God, who loves their neighbor, and who accepts the gift of God only in faith. Right? It's like the song we sang, like, I couldn't earn it, I don't deserve it, but you give yourself away. Hmm. It's tough. And that's part of why Jesus talked about that it was from the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. Or why Paul said that it was our hearts that had to be circumcised. Not necessarily outward body parts. It was your heart that needed to be changed that the very source of your desire and motivation needed to be transformed, such that you want what God wants, naturally. That's really tough. And I think when you phrase it like that, you understand why I can't do it myself. I cannot save myself. I cannot make myself want what I do not now want. Only God can make me want something that I have no desire for. And that, for Wesley, was key. That was the central message of his preaching and teaching. That's what got us here, right? Why we're sitting in a Methodist church, you know, 280-some years later. And, and that's part of why I think the covenant renewal service is so important. Because what it's really about is calibrating our hearts and bringing them back into alignment with what's really true. Um, so when I, was at, when I was at West Point, I had to do like a lot of science stuff. I was a history major, but I had to do a bunch of science classes. I had to do physics and chemistry and um, civil engineering, and that was, you know, I did okay with it, to be honest. I was okay. Not great. Okay. Um, but I remember like one of the problems that I, we used to have to run into is you did a lot of like experimentation and measuring stuff, and you know, anybody remember chemistry? It was awful. <laughs> I hated chemistry. I did okay with physics. Civil engineering was more fun. Chemistry. We didn't agree. Um, so the problem with it is that like, if the instrument isn't measuring correctly, then it's, it's worthless. You know, If it's not lined up with reality, then it's not really helping you. So like, you know, New Year's resolutions, maybe you make a resolution, I'm going to lose 10 pounds. Well, if your scale is wrong, and if it's prone to going wrong, then it's not going to help you. If it's out of alignment with reality, if it's not measuring correctly, then it's not going to help. And so to calibrate it, you have to bring it back online, maybe adjust it, do the little knobby thing that like moves it, you know, the old like actual scales before they had the digital scales. Does anyone know what I'm trying to say here? As I'm not, my words are not coming as freely as they should. So I'm doing this dumb wavy motion with my hand. 
Um, like I'm telegraphing something to Mike in the back row. Um, that was not as funny as I thought it would be either. I was trying to recover, save myself. I cannot, Lord help. Calibration though is the point, is to bring our hearts, the very source of our motivation and desire in alignment with reality. Um, and so for us, I think one of the things that we're going to do at the start of this year is I want us to do this as a church, um, to just clarify who we are and what the church is about and the invitation of following Jesus. Over the next two months, that's what we're going to focus on as a church, sort of who we are as a church, what we can be, how we can be a, like actually a little bit different in this world. Um, and so then the challenge is, of course, like John actually really wisely and correctly pointed out, is that in a way... The whole is the sum of its parts, right? The church is only as good as you. Our city is only as good as you. Our state or our region is only as good as the people in it. Our country is only as good as the people in it. If, you know, if that's a point of concern for you for, for this coming year, what's going to happen in our country? And in two years, we're going to be in another general election. God help us all. And the thing is, is what you're going to see in that, so maybe start preparing your heart now, but what you're going to see in that is not that the country in kind of some vague sense is just wandering off the tracks. No, 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 no. It's the people because their hearts are wicked. And I say that, like, you know, with all seriousness. And we need to be recalibrated and brought back into alignment with what's actually true about that the center of reality is the God of love who gives himself up for us, for the forgiveness of sin, to remove shame and guilt, and also to offer us to live a new kind of life that's distinctly and genuinely human as it was always meant to be. Happy New Year. (laughs) So if you would, let's pray, and then we're going to go into our covenant renewal service together. Father, we thank you for your goodness and grace. We thank you uh, for the life and witness and legacy of men like John Wesley um, and the Methodist movement who led us um, in so many ways to rediscover the grace of God, the love of God, and the power of God to change us at our deepest levels. Thank you for the reminder that it's not about me just doing better or trying harder. Uh, Even as we go into a new year when so many of us, we want to make resolutions, we want to turn over a new new chapter, new leaf, we want to be better genuinely in a variety of different ways, whether it's family or our marriages or our relationships or with our kids or our grandkids or financially or physically or whatever it may be. Lord, remind us that while we do, you do require from us effort, our effort doesn't earn it. It is by your grace we are saved through faith. So I ask Jesus that you would give us that power, give us that grace, give us that faith to experience more of you and what you're doing in our world. And as we move into this time of covenant renewal, I ask, Lord, that you would bless these words, that they would not just be words on a screen for us, they would become words that touch the deepest parts of us and that transform our hearts with power. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.